Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined again by renowned drama critic Terry Teachout for a second conversation on a Nicolas Ray Noir. Today we're talking about his masterpiece, In a Lonely Place. It came out in 1950, it stars Humphrey Bogart in one of his peak performances and Gloria Graham at her most sophisticated and most beautiful. And it's a parallel story to some of the things we've dealt with before, since it concerns a screenwriter in Hollywood and an actress, men who try to control women, who hope that by investing in the beautiful and in art, they could reach happiness. And as noir often does, it teaches us why so often love doesn't succeed when it is what we want most. Thanks for joining me again, Terry. It's a pleasure to be back. Please tell us, first of all, how did you run into this movie and what's your first approach to it? Well, I first saw In a Lonely Place, I don't know, I guess 10 or 15 years ago. It wasn't as well known then, it's still not one of the films that's most closely identified with Humphrey Bogart, because it is in some ways uncharacteristic. In the films that he made in the 40s, what you might call the iconic films like Casablanca and To Have and Have Not, he plays a seeming cynic who is redeemed and reclaimed for idealism by romantic love. That is the quintessential Bogart character. It's what has put him into our cultural consciousness. But In a Lonely Place is a very different proposition. It starts out, you think it's going to be that kind of film. Bogart is a deeply cynical screenwriter, a failed screenwriter, who early in the film finds love at exactly the same moment that he is suspected of murder. And we take for granted, if you've never seen the film, that the way it will proceed is that love will redeem him and everything will work out and we'll be seeing a typical quintessential Bogart film. That is not what happens here. In a way, this film looks back to the first image-changing movie that Bogart made, High Sierra, which has a tragic ending, as does this. But you realize, probably about halfway into In a Lonely Place, that it's going somewhere else entirely. And it is at that point that I think you begin to see it not as a Bogart film, but as a film noir, which is an interesting piece of characterization, because in many ways, In a Lonely Place does not fit the structural paradigm of film noir that we've talked about in earlier podcasts. There is no femme fatale. There is no obvious moral choice that Bogart makes. The reason why we call it a film noir is because of the atmosphere, which is enormously powerful, completely characteristic of the genre, and so different from the Bogart films with which he is identified that we feel the inadequacy of describing it in any other way. When I first saw it, as I say, about 10 or 15 years ago, I think was when film noir was really beginning to get cultural purchase among American filmgoers. And I read about it. I think it's something that David Thompson wrote about it. He thought it was Bogart's best film. I sought it out. I was staggered, as I think pretty much everybody is when they first see it. And I came to feel, as he does, that it is Bogart's best, most mature film performance. And it's also Gloria Graham's most mature film performance because she doesn't usually get to play roles like this. Usually she's playing some cute variation on the femme fatale in film noir. And it doesn't really test her power to portray a genuinely mature woman. This film does, and she passes the test with flying colors. Bogart actually has a line about this in the film itself. He's describing her to her. He says, when you first walked into the police station, I said to myself, there she is, the one that's different. She's not coy or cute or corny. She's a good guy. I'm glad she's on my side. She speaks her mind and she knows what she wants. 
you would not say that about the Gloria Graham of really any of the other films that she's most closely identified with. This movie reminds us that there was more to her as there was more to Bogart than we first suspected. And having always admired Bogart as, you know, everybody in my generation, I'm 62, I really felt that I understood him better as an actor, as an artist, as a potential, you might say, after seeing this remarkable film, which, of course, he produced himself. It was something that he wanted to do. not a studio product. It was produced by his own Santana Productions. Yeah. It's a rare achievement precisely because, as you put it, we tend to look at Bogart as a noble guy, sometimes a noble loser, but somewhat sentimental. Whereas here, you see in him the moral intensity and the psychological strengths in characterization and performance that, as you said, High Sierra shows that. To an extent, his role, the thing that made him a star in John Huston's directorial debut, The Maltese Falcon, and also in another John Huston picture, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. These are all movies where the dark side of the soul is on display, it is gradually revealed through a plot, and sort of like in, in a lonely place, the genre seems to change in these movies as audience expectations are treated with more maturity and moved in the direction of revealing something true about character, about our souls, really. And it's something that, of course, we don't often want to confront. Why are we so in love with Bogart's tough manliness? Right. The Bogart character is an anti-hero. But in these films, it is the anti that is stressed and not the hero. What happens to him is not heroic. It is tragic. It is terrible. Uh, Nowhere more so, I think, than in a lonely place, because he doesn't die at the end. Uh, uh, The end of In a Lonely Place rather reminds me of Vertigo, another film that that you and I have talked about. Uh, At the end of that last scene, you know, Bogart is not dead. He is not obviously heading towards death, but he's heading towards something worse, which is a life in which he realizes that he can never, ever have what he wants, that his expectations about life are blasted and destroyed. Just as at the end of Vertigo, you see James Stewart up there at the top of the bell tower, and you know that the only real good, really good option he has now is to jump out after Kim Novak. Yes, and this moral intensity and the anti-hero quality again and again bring up the figure of the tragic hero. As we learn from Aristotle, these are not good guys, really. They are impressive men, they are men of distinction, they are people we are given to admire because they achieve certain things that we also admire and would want to achieve, but they're not ultimately good guys, and some kind of mistake is supposed to lead them down a road of catastrophe that is always there in potential for them. It is always a possibility given the characters that they have. And so the reversal of fortune, Bogart starts, as you said, with this predicament. On the one hand, love. He has at long last found love. And on the other hand, he is under the worst cloud of suspicion ever. He's always had a bad reputation, apparently, at least since the war. And again, as we have talked before, the war is important for Noir, World War II, and we'll get to that. But this dark suspicion is now focused on maybe he murdered somebody. Maybe his sort of immoral, detached ways, his sophistication and his cynicism, maybe they have gone too far. And we see how, despite whatever successes he might have had, or the prestige of being a screenwriter, he's not just a failure professionally now, he's also suspected of being a failure as a citizen, as a good human being, as a decent person. As a man, yes. 
It's interesting in this connection to compare the film with its source material. Andrew Salt adapted the screenplay from a very good novel by Dorothy B. Hughes, whose work is just now being rediscovered. The novel version of In a Lonely Place was republished by the Library of America a few years ago in the two-volume Omnibus Women Crime Writers, and it has now had separate paperback publication by New York Review Books. It has the same characters, or rather the same character names, but Dick Steele, although he is a returning vet, is not a screenwriter, and he's not an anti-hero. He is a serial murderer. We are never in doubt about this. And the novel is a psychological study of the mentality of the serial killer, and an extraordinarily persuasive one. Uh, I think quite well ahead of its time. Dorothy Hughes is a much underrated writer. This is obviously not a character that Bogart could have played or would have wanted to play in Hollywood. But at the same time, by changing him into somebody who is an anti-hero with the stress on the anti, but not a murderous monster, something at least as interesting is happening to the character. He is not a madman, but a tragedy, a walking tragedy. We assume, although it's not spelled out explicitly, that he has been damaged by the war, which is one of the quintessential plot lines of film noir. Men see things that they can't deal with in war and have to do things, and then they come back to the normal world of America, and they're not capable of dealing with it. And we assume that the Dixon Steele of the film is that kind of man. He's seen things in wartime that he can't deal with, and now he comes back to Hollywood, the city of artificiality where he's been making his living writing commercial films. And he can't do that anymore either, because like the real-life directors who went out to World War II, like George Stevens in particular, when you've seen a concentration camp, you don't want to come back and make musicals anymore. And so Dixon Steele has discovered in the film that he contains within himself a potential for violence and rage and anger, which he cannot fully control. The film actually starts cold on that discovery. Immediately after the credits, uh, we see a confrontation between him and a complete stranger that could clearly have led to violence. And later on in the film, we see him come very near to murdering a man for no good reason at all. So it's quite a situation that this man, whom we've gotten to know at this point in the film, is suspected of the violent murder of a woman and is suspected by a woman who loves him. So even though he's not a serial killer, the film has not watered down the situation. It has just changed it in a significant, but I think still completely valid way. Yeah, the way Nicolas Ray and the writing team control our expectations and our dawning awareness that this is not a Bogart we're used to. This is a Bogart that has depths we might regret looking into because in the first act, broadly speaking, or in the first half, he seems sort of in control. If he gets angry, well, there's provocation. And after all, if a man provokes you, it's a manly thing to do to fight him. Right. We're also thrown off the scent by the fact that the first half of In a Lonely Place contains quite a bit of comedy, not just romantic comedy touches, the kind of back chat that you'd expect in a Billy Wilder film, but also the portrayal of the hat check girl at the restaurant modeled on Chasen's, who is murdered. Bogart is suspected of the murder, but she is portrayed as a silly, foolish girl, the very embodiment of the kinds of people who go to see the silly movies that Dixon Steele used to write. And then suddenly the stakes become higher because she's battered to death and he's suspected of having battered her to death. 
just because in the previous scene he and Gloria Grant met cute doesn't mean that this is going to be a meet cute kind of movie. There's a real dissonance going on. And the juxtaposition of comedy and horror, really, the situation is horrible. We even get a very brief look at murder scene photographs early in the film. That's quite a juxtaposition. It is not what you expect to see in a 1950 Hollywood film, especially not one that stars Humphrey Bogart as the protagonist. And it's a dead giveaway, just as Nicholas Ray's preceding film on Dangerous Ground, which deals with a very similar kind of character, lets you know that this is a good man and a bad man at the same time and forces you to ask yourself, which man is the real man or are they both real? Yes, you're right. Uh, this character, the Hatcher Girl, played by Martha Stewart, is special precisely because the reversal of fortune and of expectation there is just unparalleled in the movie. She's funny, she's silly, she's clearly an airhead, but she's also a decent girl. Yes. To make it in Hollywood, but she doesn't want to compromise herself. And it's played for laughs. And for once, we're with Bogart in a knowing, superior way, kind of laughing at this girl. Although, really, we're sort of with the girl, too, since we're audiences and somewhat gullible. Very interesting camera work in this scene. Very characteristic of Nicholas Ray to cue the audience in on what is happening. Dixon Steele has been asked to adapt a popular novel for the screen, and he can't bring himself to, to read the damn thing because he knows how horrible it's going to be. So he finds out that the hatchet girl at his favorite restaurant has just read the novel, and he brings her home to tell him the plot. And as she starts to do so, the point of view of the camera switches. The scene is told from the point of view of Dixon Steele, looking in amazement at this girl, recounting this ridiculous plot to him. And she moves in on the camera, which of course foreshortens her features, and she looks caricature-like as she tells this preposterous story. And we are in Dixon Steele's position, and we are invited to sympathize with her, but also maybe to have a little bit of contempt for her, which is why it is so shocking when, two minutes later, we find out what happened to her as soon as she left Dixon's apartment. Yeah, it's not at all something we expect, and it's the first cue that things are going to take a very dark turn. What we've gradually developed through the plot is that Dixon Steele, Bogart, he plays a noble loser. He's a washed-up writer, but he has a kind of self-respect. Sure, he's very angry, but he's angry at a very corrupt place, Hollywood, where people make garbage stuff. He hates himself for the stuff he does. He says he doesn't want to watch movies he's written. He wants to forget this stuff, and he blames directors who collaborate in the studio system and just make the same damn picture over and over, and has this one moment of pride where he says, you know what, I might surprise you one day and write something good. And there's self-loathing there, but there is defiance, too. You see him defending a drunkard who is another loser with a touch of nobility. Such a touching thing. Yeah, he's a, an old film actor. He obviously, as a young man, played Shakespearean roles. He still has the old-fashioned Shakespearean manner. But he's a drunk, and he doesn't have any money, and Bogart is deeply fond of him and slips him money and won't allow him. This is important, to be humiliated by studio people who look upon him with undeserved contempt. It's touches like this that make us feel that Dixon Steele is not in any way a simple man. He's a decent man, but he's a man who has been damaged by the war, I think fatally, and contains within himself the time bomb of self-hatred and violence, which we know can explode at any time. And so it's perfectly possible that he committed this murder. A very interesting piece of plot mechanics. Gloria Graham's character gives him an alibi for the murder. 
she says that she saw him out her window uh, and can thus establish that, that he didn't leave with the girl he's thought to have killed. But in fact, if you go back and look at the scene, you know that she didn't see that. Uh, she did see him in the apartment with her or through the window. But we do not see her seeing him leave or not leave with the Hatchet girl. Uh, it is possible that the alibi that she's giving him is a lie, that she gives it to him because she loves him, because he has a nice face, as she tells the, the police detective. Um, we don't know, and that really ratchets up the suspense considerably. It, it asks us to consider, right from the start, the possibility that Bogart is, in fact, the murderer around whom this, this film revolves. That's, that's quite a nifty little touch. And, of course, in the 50s, a couple of times, Bogart did play Mad Men. Yes. And it's, it's always there, a possibility for him. And we should get to this issue, Bogart's face. Bogart was one of the first stars to be not ugly, but certainly not handsome. He was not tall, dark, and handsome by a mile. But he does have a very interesting face. It is weather-beaten, it is serious, it shows, or suggests rather, experience, much of it not pretty, but also the strength to have borne it. And Ray shoots him in such a way as to emphasize these, these aspects of his features. Uh, one of the, the, the scenes from the film that is most often talked about and, and, and shown in film classes is the scene in which Bogart goes to dinner with his, his wartime friend, the policeman who is actually investigating him, and his young wife, played by Jeff Donnell. And they, they say to him, well, how could, how could a murder like this have happened? And he says, well, we do it all the time in Hollywood. And he describes to them how uh, a man and a woman sitting in a car seat, how the man could reach over and choke the woman to death without her even realizing what was happening until it was too late. Uh, as he tells this story, the camera picks him up almost in full screen with a bright key light in his eyes and his features pushed forward in the same way that the Hatchet Girl's features were pushed forward. And as he describes this imagined scene with a kind of lasciviousness almost, uh, the sight of him sitting there in the chair with this almost an evil grin talking about how he himself might have killed this woman and how he would have gone about it, is really quite shocking. Uh, you don't look to Hollywood to, to let a star make that kind of scene. And usually the stars don't want it to be made. They want to be protected. Uh, they, they, they wanted you to know that they couldn't do that kind of thing. You would never have seen Gary Cooper uh, filmed in this way. Uh, but Bogart wasn't afraid of that kind of thing. In a few years, he's going to film The K-Mutiny, in which he plays a, a, a Navy a ship's captain who is actually mentally disturbed. And we, sh we see him going mad on the witness stand in a court-martial. Uh, this film foreshadows uh, what happens in, in The K-Mutiny. Uh, and it reminds us of how willing Bogart was to go beyond what was allowed for stars in what kind of potential he had that I think was untapped. You know, I mean, Bogart died young, relatively young. Uh, he could have, I once thought about this, he could have lived long enough 
to have made to have played character roles in the age of films like uh, uh, Chinatown, just as John Huston did. And I, I sometimes think about the kinds of roles that he might have played in the the darker neo-noir era of the 70s. He might well have played uh, roles like Noah Cross in Chinatown. Uh, and when you see In a Lonely Place, you get a sense of what he could have done with roles like that if he had not died far too young. Yeah, Bogart has a quality about him of a star, glamour. Uh, there's something about him that's shining. And in the movie, he's dressed in a somewhat flamboyant way. He's obviously a man of sophisticated taste. You will see him in uh, lovely yellow coats that suggest camel hair or cashmere, in dark shirts, under light-colored coats, all sorts of touches that are supposed to signal to the audience, ain't just a man in a suit. Right, and his apartment is beautifully decorated. Uh, he is he is a man of intelligence and taste in a place that that profits neither, and that is part of the source of his self-loathing. Uh, what makes him different from your typical Hollywood sellout is that he is so consumed by this self-loathing that is it has created in him the potential for murderous violence. And that, I think, is part of what makes In a Lonely Place seem so modern to us now, especially right at this moment in, in what we now call the Me Too moment. Uh, when, when, when In a Lonely Place was released in 1950, I remember what happens. This is a film in which Gloria Graham ultimately rejects Humphrey Bogart as a romantic partner because she fears him, because she fears his potential for violence. Even after she discovers that he is not, in fact, the murderer, she knows that she can't live with a man like that. I don't know how that would have been read in 1950, but nowadays we read it as a woman saying, I'm not going to live with a man like that. That is the, the correct modern way to feel about discovering the man, that a man is capable of violence. Uh, and the fact that the film is so forthright about this uh, that that really makes it land in a different way than it would have landed a half century ago, I think. It's quite striking. Yeah, this also belongs to what we said, that Gloria Graham is allowed to play an adult woman, and that he recognizes this at first. He's attracted to the fact that she's not a loser, that she's not needy, in short, that she's utterly unlikely to, say, betray him for Hollywood charms. Right. He knows from the she, start she's that she a potential that being a kept woman, a trophy for a rich man. Right. She can be a real partner to him, a good guy, as he says. That's clearly what he wants in a woman or what he thinks he wants. But right from the beginning, this is another very striking aspect of the screenplay. Even his most romantic speeches have this undertone of violence and control. It's partly in the script. It's partly in Bogart's line readings, where once again, he is unafraid to portray Dixon Steele as, as somebody who has somewhat warped feelings about women. I, I love his speech when he kisses her for the first time. And he says, I've been looking for someone a long time. I didn't know her name or where she lived. I'd never seen her before. Now, a girl was killed. Because of that, I found what I was looking for. Now I know your name, where you live, and how you look. And what we hear in, in 2018 is the voice of a stalker, is a voice of somebody who is, although he 
clearly really loves Gloria, Gloria Graham, and there's no question about that. But there is something wrong with the love, something suspect, something controlling. And all of the, the warning lights on our dashboards go off when we hear him deliver this line in the way that he delivers it. It's staged so that I, I'm, I'm not, Bogart was a short man, and I don't know how tall he was relative in real life to Gloria Graham. But the way in which this scene is shot and staged, he looks down on her as he delivers these lines, and it is frightening. And you see that she is frightening. She is registering, yes, I love you, but there is something off about you. What is it? And we're going to find out. Yeah, with his love affair, you see the two sides that come out of him. On the one hand, he likes this woman because she is sort of like him. She has an independent spirit, which is very rare, especially in a place where you have to conform to be a success. And throughout the first act, we see that he hates people who conform that way. And he has an admiration for people who are losers, but who are losers because they failed to conform. And so some of this is self-love. And so also the other part, the obsession with control, we gradually realize has to do with the fact that he lacks self-control and that he needs this woman in his life to have any semblance of normality. He's not just controlling, he's also desperate. And the second act does a masterful job of hiding much of this by portraying this romantic love this domesticity that is at the same time sophisticated and modern, they're not married, for example, and nevertheless suggesting again and again, it's not all the domestic love you're used to, it's not all the romance you think you know will unfold towards a happy end. He needs desperately this normality and both of them love having the opportunity to have a peaceful love, but it is at the same time shown to be in various ways consuming. He's working all night, then she's working all night. He's writing and she's typing his scripts. Their few social occasions with friends have dark sides to them. You see that underneath this typical movie romance, or rather a great version of a movie romance, there is this dark psychology that nevertheless individualizes the characters. As you said, we know about Gloria Graham too. She kind of lied to the cops. She likes the man and she likes a bit of danger in her life. And she knows that to some extent she admires him because of his strength, but she soon learns to fear it as well. And you see in her character this conflict between a desire for a man who is not a conformist or weak, and on the other hand, the fear of what it might mean to arouse the darker passions of this. Right. One of the really intelligent touches of the film is that it does give full value to the love. And a, a scene in which this is palpable is the scene that takes place in a piano bar. Uh, they, they go out together. Uh, it's one of those bars where you're actually standing around the piano while, while somebody is playing and singing. And at the piano is Hatta Brooks, who's a wonderful uh, um, black singer, pianist, balladeer. Uh, uh, and she's, she's singing, I hadn't anyone till you. And they're at the bar. Uh, all we hear is her singing. Uh, we actually see Bogart whispering in Gloria Graham's ear, but we don't know what he says. We just see that they're both delighted by what he says. They're, they're full of each other. They're in love. There is no shadow on this scene until he looks up and sees that a detective has come into the bar and knows that he is being tailed. And suddenly uh, his fuse is lit and we're back in the world of the angry Bogart who distrusts the whole world. Uh, and we're, we're pulled away from the love. We're pulled away from the beautiful song and the beautiful woman singing it. Uh, and we realize, no, 
this may not end well. And uh, we see that Gloria Graham knows it too. Uh, we haven't said anything, by the way, about the circumstances in which this film was made, which are, are really quite horrible and wonderful at the same time. Gloria Graham and Nicholas Spray were married. Uh, their marriage was breaking up uh, during the time uh, the film was being made. And the reason why it was breaking up is because Gloria Graham was having an affair with her stepson, uh, which is really a bizarre sort of thing that could never have gotten into a film of, of the day. Uh, and it was not known to the public at large. But Nicholas Ray is making this film that portrays her as a beautiful, intelligent, mature woman at the very moment that his own life is being torn to shreds by the beautiful, intelligent woman on the screen. Um, obviously, you, you need not know that uh, to appreciate the film. But when you do know it, it, it certainly adds an interesting layer of, of, of sub subtext to In a Lonely Place to know what kind of person Gloria Graham was. Uh, she was the stuff of whom film characters are made. And in fact, uh, I think it was earlier this year, uh, a movie about her was made of uh, film stars don't die in Liverpool in which she's played by Annette Benning, one of the great stars of neo-noir of the grifters. Um, very appropriate casting for a, a very remarkable and dangerous and sad woman because Gloria Graham's life was in no way a happy life. Yes, that's very true, and only Nicholas Ray and her were privy to this secret. The crew did not know what was happening in this marriage, and there's something of bravura in, as people say, the show must go on, and you see a dedication to craft and to storytelling that's heartbreaking in its own way, as you put it. Yes. You learn this, it, it, it makes things somewhat more touching and endearing, but also baffling at another level. Somehow art does require a sacrifice of life or a great distance from it. Obviously, Nicholas Ray and Gloria Graham in a very different situations were capable of it and even wanted to do it, but whether it's wise or prudent is a completely different question. Ray himself is a fascinating character. Uh, somebody who started out in Hollywood uh, doing a, a mixture of really quite serious and remarkable films like They Live by Night and purely commercial work that he did for the studios. Um, suddenly he starts to get traction in his career, I think partly because he worked with John Hausman, uh, one of the most tasteful and sophisticated film producers of the day. Uh, and he starts to make movies that within the limitations of the genres in which he's working are first-rate, absolutely first-rate pieces of artistic work. This film, Dangerous Ground, uh, They Live by Night, uh, I think his masterpiece, The Lusty Man, the, uh, the rodeo film that he made with Robert Mitchum. But everybody who knew him and worked with him, Hausman says this in particular, notices a kind of weakness in Ray, an inability to control the situation. And uh, he starts to come apart after the early 50s as a filmmaker loses the direction of his career and eventually becomes one of the uh, the beautiful losers, the great failures of Hollywood. He can't hold it together. But for a brief time in the late 40s and early 50s, there really wasn't anybody better or more individual uh, making uh, genre films, film noir. Uh, the Lusty Man is a kind of a rodeo film noir, if you like, um, than Nicholas Ray. And, uh, and it was never more beautifully presented than in this film, which is, of course, 
for all its terror and shock, uh, for all its disturbing qualities, is also deeply romantic. And that's why it's so unsettling. Uh, the signature line in the film, the one that everybody quotes, uh, is is where Bogart is. He says to test her, I've come up with a line for a script I'm writing and I want you to try it out. And they're driving together. And the line, of course, is I was born when she kissed me. I died when she left me. I lived a few weeks while she loved me. The, a quintessential romantic statement. And yet it is made half a minute after Bogart nearly beats a stranger to death with a rock. Um, that juxtaposition tells us exactly what kind of movie in a lonely place is. It is a movie where somebody who is capable of great love, a true romantic, is also capable of great violence and to be controlling and hateful. There's no other way to put it. Um, uh, above all, hateful of himself. And uh, what a portrait of Hollywood to make. And that, too, is part of why we think of this as a noir film. It is one of the one of the few films that does not conform really in any way to the structural model of noir. The other one that comes to mind is Orson Welles' uh, Touch of Evil. Uh, and yet everybody thinks of it as a film noir. Everybody writes about film noir. Everybody loves the genre. Uh, and they're right uh, because it reminds us that film noir is not just a structural formula. It is an atmosphere. It is an attitude. Uh, it's, it's, it's a kind of film that is made about people, decent people, who get in too deep for whatever reason. Uh, they, they go down the wrong road uh, out of compulsion, as is Bogart's case, as because they've been damaged in the war, uh, because they've just made a wrong moral choice, as is Orson Welles' character in Touch of Evil, or in the traditional film noir because they are tempted away from the course of righteousness by the femme fatale. But they move into what Eddie Muller, uh, who writes about film noir, calls the dark city of noir, and they can't come out of it again. And uh, so interesting that there's not a whole lot of darkness in the exteriors to this film. Uh, when Bogart emerges from the initial police interrogation uh, after he's suspected the murder, uh, it's the sun has come up. Uh, the streets of Los Angeles are fresh. Uh, they're actually wet because they're being hosed down. They're being cleaned. And uh, he walks away from the police station and it, it doesn't look like a film war at all. Uh, any, any more than the, the beautiful country service station at the beginning of out of the past looks like a film war, uh, which reminds us that noir is not something that takes place at a certain time of night it's something that takes place in the hearts of men and women. And that's why this genre has proved to have so much staying power, uh, so much force, uh, and it feels so contemporary to us. Because you didn't get a lot of movies like that uh, coming from A pictures, coming from the big studios immediately after the war. We were through the war and people wanted to look at the world in a different way. And even in a film like The Best Years of Our Lives that makes a real attempt, uh, William Wyler was quite serious in this film about trying to show us what war does to men and women. It's nevertheless a film in which things work out for the principal characters. Uh, in noir, nothing works out for anybody. Somebody's always the fall guy or the fall gal. And the one who gets away with it is, if there's one who gets away with it, is, is scarred for life forever afterwards. Um, 
And boy, if, if, if there's, there's, if there's a film that meets that standard, it's in a lonely place. Um, at the end of which, uh, it's just, it's like Titus Andronicus, you know, it's just a stage full of corpses, uh, corpses of the soul, but corpses nonetheless. We haven't talked about the score, which I always like to do. Um, uh, in a lonely place is scored by a man who also sold his soul in Hollywood, George Antio. Um, who is known to classical uh, 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 music scholars as one of the key avant-garde figures of the 20s. He is the man who wrote Ballet Mechanique, uh, the all-percussion uh, uh, score. Uh, uh, and um, he was considered briefly in the 20s to be one of the coming men of, of, of classical music. And something went wrong, and something often went, goes wrong, and he ended up in Hollywood writing film scores of the utmost conventionality and as as we've learned in recent years collaborating with Hedy Lamarr of all people uh, on a patent that ended up being used for uh, the, the creation of the internet years and years later uh, he he wrote a column about the war he did all sorts of odd things and he scored films to make a living and he scored this one and it's an uneven score uh, the opening uh, cues are just not very good at all. They're they're really sentimental, and you think, oh no, this is not good. But when he hits the romantic parts, uh, suddenly uh, the score comes into focus, and he has a beautiful uh, theme that shifts between major and minor that accompanies these romantic scenes uh, that that is threaded through the film and comes out uh, at the end with with great potent potency. Uh, Film noir was generally lucky in the quality of, of its scores. Uh, it tended to bring out the best in composers like Roy Webb, the best example, or Mikkels Rocha, who always gave him his best. Uh, this score is not that good, but you can see when it is good, uh, it doesn't damage the film, and when it's good, it really supports it. Um, and, of course, we've said nothing about cinematography, but it's it's gorgeous high contrast it really stands out when you watch uh, digital transfers of the film um i wonder what bogart expected of this film i wonder what he expected it to do um he was a man who was of course quite cynical about hollywood with very good reason but you don't set up your own production company uh, and name it after your yacht santana productions unless you feel that you want to do something better than the things that you've been given to do. And what does he do? He makes it a lonely place, which is very much better by, by several factors than any of the other films other than The Treasure of the Sierra Madre that he was making around the same time or in the years immediately following this. It is a movie of real, formidable, absolute seriousness. And it didn't do particularly well at the box office. I mean, it wasn't a flop, but uh, uh, it didn't suddenly make Humphrey Bogart the hot producer of the day. I mean, the way that uh, Burt Lancaster and, and his producing partners were briefly very, very hot. Um, it was just another project. And I wonder how he felt about it. I wonder whether he was disappointed or whether he was, in fact, so cynical that he just, this is what he expected. If he was like Dixon Steele and he said to himself, oh, you know, you try something good and this is what happens. Uh, as far as I know, 
He never said anything about it. I've never uh, read any interview, any primary source indication of his response to the way the film was released. And yet it was quite clearly the film that he meant to make, the film that Nicholas Ray meant to make. Uh, and it did get released. And now it's now it belongs to the ages. And I think, I'm not the only person who thinks this, David Thompson has said exactly the same thing, that it is the best and truest performance that Humphrey Bogart ever gave in front of the camera. Um, because it has none of, you, you used the word sentimentality a few minutes ago, and I think that's right on the nose. Um, that's part of what makes Casablanca a great popular film, because it, it has this touch of sentimental nobility at the end. It gives us what we want, which is to see Bogart doing the right thing and walking off into the fog with Claude Rains uh, uh, for the beginning of a beautiful friendship as they resist the Nazis together. Uh, you know, it, it tells us what we want to hear. In a lonely place, never tells you what you want to hear. It tells you that the world is a hard place and things just don't work out for some people, including nice, decent people who, whose lives got screwed up by circumstances beyond their control. Uh, and although Dixon Steele is a man, I would say, consumed by self-pity, he is not portrayed as self-pitying in this film. Uh, David Thompson said that self-pity was the thing that got into Bogart's characterizations and was part of what made them uh, typical of him. And I see that. I know what he's talking about. Uh, it's part of what made him a romantic hero. Uh, but Dixon Steele, although I guess he pities himself, but his response to that is not to sit around whining. It's to want to beat people up, uh, to wreck his own life and every life that he touches. Uh, and Bogart was unafraid, as we now say, to go there, uh, to go all the way there. Uh, there is nothing self-protective in this performance. Nothing at all. It is completely unguarded. Uh, he, he could have played the serial killer of the novel if he wanted to. I think it's better that he didn't. Wonderful though the novel is, it, it's a little bit one-dimensional by comparison to, uh, to what this film tries to do, tries to show us. And that it is a film about Hollywood itself, the world in which Bogart lived and worked. That, that makes it all the more tough. Uh, and there are all sorts of things woven through the film, touches of realism. Uh, the restaurant, uh, the fact that Michael Romanoff uh, of, of Romanoff's restaurant actually plays a bit part in the film. I mean, we are, this is a very knowing film, uh, far more knowing than such uh, alleged portraits of Hollywood is, as uh, 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 Vincent Minnelli's, uh, oh, I've just gone blank. What was the, what was the film about Hollywood that he made and Gloria Grant? that too won the oscar for it why have i gone blank on the name of this famous film but the bad and the beautiful oh, oh yeah that, exactly the Kirk Douglas picture. Yeah, that, that pretends to be a cynical film about hollywood it is really a sentimental film about hollywood uh, if you want to see another film that achieves the level of true cynicism from this period attained by in a lonely place you've really got to go to billy wilder's uh, ace in the hole uh, as black-hearted a film as has ever been made. This movie is tough, 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 tough. And it's tough, really tough, unsparingly tough about the world of Hollywood. And by God, Humphrey Bogart made it. Um, he may not have made any money off it, uh, but uh, 
will remember it, I think, for as long as we remember, remember him as an actor, as a personality, as a screen icon. And uh, I, I think its status is, is only going to continue to increase uh, as, as history moves on, uh, just as, as noir itself is now perceived in a very different way than it was when those films were new or for many, many years afterwards. Nowadays, a lot of us think that noir was one of the very best things that Hollywood ever did, not just in the late 40s and early 50s, but throughout its history. And if that's true, it's, it's because of movies like this, movies with this kind of, of honesty. And movies that, as you have pointed out to us earlier, are in a way teaching movies, movies that they tell us, don't be like this. They also tell us sometimes people can't help being like this. This is their destiny. That's the hardest truth of all, I think. And it's the truth that this film embodies. Yeah, it's, it seems like both, uh, really, most of the people involved most intimately and, and who did most of the work for the film had a kind of personal motive and uh, an experience, a background that would lead them in this direction. As you said, true cynicism. You have to. It is a disillusioned movie, but also says many true things. It has a sophistication about movies, such as the beautiful love scene in the kitchen when Bogart turns to Gloria Graham and says, Yeah, I write good love scenes because I don't obsess with, over that stuff. I don't have characters say to each other how much they love each other all the time. It's always got to be about something else as well. Look at this. It's domesticity, it's the trust involved in that scene that uh, not only shows you, yeah, he grasps it, but also teaches the audience how these things work. And of course, at the third level within the drama of the movie, you know that she no longer trusts him. Yes. The turning, point, the turning point of the film is when she goes without him and pays a visit to Jeff Donnell, uh, the, the detective's wife, the detective who, who served with Dick Steele in the war and genuinely cares for him can't believe that he would commit a crime like this. And uh, uh, these two women have hit it off. Uh, they are both in love with men who are friends. Uh, Jeff Donnell really doesn't want to, to break things up. But as she tells it, as she sees it, you see in Gloria Graham's face the awakening realization that things are as she thinks they are that there is something wrong with the man she loves and that it is not necessarily her responsibility to fix him, to save him. That's the modern aspect of this film. Uh, when it was made, uh, I, I think one of the ideas that we had in American culture was that men could look to women for salvation, you know, that the women would, would fix them, would help them would help them over the styles of, of character disorder and help them be better people. And if experience has taught us anything, it is that while sometimes that's possible, probably more often it's not possible, that you cannot fix somebody who doesn't want to be fixed, who doesn't understand that a, a total transformation is necessary. And so at the end of the film, uh, when she makes it clear that she can't go on with him and he he leaves and she mutters that last line, you know, I lived, I lived a few weeks while you loved me. We know that she too is blasted by this relationship and that she's never going to be the same again. 
but she knows that she still has to do this. She had no choice but to do this. Um, that's very modern, and I think very right. And it may, if in a lonely place is headed for a, a period of greater pop popularity, a period of wider recognition of its quality, it may be because it gets this, well, you can say it gets it right or it doesn't get it right, but it does interpret her action in a way that we can easily read as modern, as entirely compatible with the Me Too moment, that she's come to her senses, uh, determined that she's not going to be controlled by a man who does love her. He really does. She really does love him. But just because you love somebody doesn't mean that you can have a life with them. It doesn't mean that you can have a relationship work out. Sometimes you have to walk away. And she walks away. And the terrible, terrible thing about it, the thing, that, the really tragic touch is that at this exact moment, the police detective calls and tells them that Bogart has been cleared of all suspicion. And Gloria Graham, looking at him, says, if you'd called me yesterday, it would have made a difference. But now it doesn't matter because she knows too much. She is the, the original woman who knows too much. She knows that he may be innocent of this, but that innocence isn't going to change him. And she takes for granted that she can't change him either. Yeah. So you see both uh, in, in terms of the police investigation and in terms of his career, all of a sudden he gets success that comes too late. Perhaps previously it would have helped enough to show that respectable society doesn't hold him a pariah. People don't treat him like a dog. And so maybe it would have mellowed him some, maybe it would have moderated him some. But it is too late and love by itself was not enough to fix him because he's and, and we're forced we're forced to answer yeah we're forced to answer that question ourselves um and my own answer to it is that it wouldn't have made any difference that that, that bogart is so damaged that no amount of success uh, no amount of love could have redeemed him that sooner or later somebody would have said the wrong thing done the wrong thing and once again he would have taken the rock this time maybe he would have waved the skull in. Uh, this time maybe he would have strangled the one he loves. Uh, we're 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 up on the level of Othello here. Uh, we're. Yeah. I mean, I'm saying that this. Perhaps the most important thing about the noir, we've already realized how modern it is to have these characters behave like adults who face the consequences of their actions and the darkness that inheres in the human heart. But there's another element that perhaps hasn't fully sunk in, even with modern audiences, which is the noir shows that choice doesn't matter as much as we like to believe. Nobody would choose to be this guy. Nobody would choose to act this way. Nobody would choose, faced with love, and indeed it turns out success, to completely fall apart. It, uh, it goes against our ideas, which is, uh, of course, people who are poor, who have misery in their lives, who have suffered, they might have an excuse and they might have, in fact, a compulsion to act badly, that they would be dysfunctional, but it's because society failed them first. Here, you see, it's not, that's not what this movie is about. Society is a certain remove, and in a way, neither, neither of our 
protagonist, neither of these two lovers, who are both adults who have seen enough of life to, to think twice before they act and who give their hearts out in a sense in desperation that it's the only refuge for goodness in a world that has uh, left them fairly cynical, as we said. These characters don't, because of their hard-bought wisdom, get more control over themselves, don't get the power to fix what's wrong. Things don't always work out. That is not the message of traditional Hollywood. Um, and you do, as, as we said at the beginning, you really have to look back almost to High Sierra uh, to find one of one of Bogart's major films, one of the ones for which he's remembered, in which we see that things don't always work out. I mean, he does find love. He finds an unselfish, unselfish, sacrificing love, the love of Ida Lupino. But it's too late. He's gone too far down the road of, of crime, of murder. He cannot be redeemed. Uh, and back then, of course, his destiny fits into the code, the production code, you know, he's a gangster, he's a murderer, he's got to suffer for his crimes. Well, in, in a lonely place, he's not a gangster, he's not a murderer, uh, he's just a deeply disturbed man. Uh, and we get all the signals that, that uh, he's going to have a happy ending, that Gloria Graham's going to save him, and nobody gets saved. Um, that's 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 the 70s that's, movies. Yeah. that's chinatown that, that's uh that's a utterly modern thing I, i'm always i have always wondered how noir appeals to me i'm a <coughs> excuse me <coughs> i'm a fundamentally conventional guy from a nuclear family happily married um uh i've uh, never walked down uh the alley into the dark city, uh, and yet I, I'm completely transfixed, transported by these tales of wrong moral choices uh, and femme fatales and, and uh, uh, movies in which things don't work out. Uh, they really, really speak to me. I, I have always wondered why they speak to me so powerfully. Um, I guess because, well, I mean, Aristotle can probably answer that question as well as anybody. Um, whatever the answer. Tragedy, uh, right? It's you. You experience fear and pity in watching this movie precisely because these characters are so modern, and you see when once you have seen the movie once or twice that perhaps not this misery that desiccates souls, but something very bad was going to happen because of the mismatch of character that love makes happen. He loves this woman because she's a pal. He finally has an ally. His war with a world that rejects him and where he's a failure could turn into peace. Whereas she likes him because of his toughness to an extent. Yeah. That's not yeah. going to end well. They want the opposite from each other. It was almost as peace and war, so to speak. She has run out of domesticity, easy comfort, wealth, being uh, the, the trophy wife of a wealthy guy, everything could work out for her. But no, she wants a real man instead. But real men come with a lot of baggage and danger. They're, they're fundamentally dangerous. Not, yeah. Not bad necessarily, but have the capacity for it. It adds up to a grown-up movie, a movie for adults uh, of a kind that we don't always expect Hollywood to give us. Uh, and that 
more often than not, we find most often in the realms of genre, in noir, in the greatest westerns, uh, which are not films that necessarily end with things working out well. The, the movie I saw, that I, I rescreened uh, In a Lonely Place uh, for the purposes of this discussion. And just, just before it, I watched uh, uh, Henry King's The Gunfighter, in which uh, uh, Gregory Peck plays uh, a gunfighter at the end of his rope, who uh, uh, he wants to change his life, but it's too late. He's gone too far down the road, and he must meet his violent destiny. Um, that is also a very grown-up movie, uh, a movie that, that tells a hard truth about human life and human nature. But it's told in the context of a cowboy movie, a movie with white hats and black hats. Um, um, it says something about Hollywood that maybe you find the most truth in Golden Age Hollywood products in the genre films, where because they were made according to a rule-bound procedure for relatively low budgets. Uh, uh, they were made out of the way of the big studio guys who knew where the money was. Uh, all they needed for these films was a decent rental so that they could uh, keep the process going. That gives you room to maneuver. And uh, Bogart, because he was Humphrey Bogart and had set up his own production company, was in a position to make a film like this. Uh, it didn't wreck his career. Uh, he went on to greater triumphs and more characteristic triumphs, uh, movies like The African Queen, which is a, a wonderful movie, but one that gives us what we want uh, and gives us a version of the Bogart character that's satisfying. Um, and so it won him the Oscar. It was yeah, and it won him the Oscar. Acceptable. But here's where the art is in this movie and in yes. other movies like it. And it's uh, maybe the first thing that's obvious. Other movies are beautiful too. Other movies have great cinematography or sharp performances, but other movies almost always have happy ends. Yes. But there are these few exceptions where you see unhappy ends and often you see dangerous men. The Westerns also at their best show that the, the most impressive men, the John Waynes, they're not necessarily good guys, but they are no. necessarily scary guys. And this is something we should be willing to face up to, that we admire things that are inherently dangerous and could get out of hand. Or the Randolph Scots, who are in his best films, he, he is on the side of right, but he is also somebody who is known wrong and who I think has been tempted by it and who <coughs> is forced to resort to murderous violence in order to restore the balance against characters like Lee Marvin in Seven Men From Now, uh, who is, as we know, somebody who also pops up in the kinds of films we've just been talking about in a film like The Big Heat. Somebody asked Marvin once, what is it that you're trying to do when you're playing a villain? And Marvin, who of course had been wounded in combat in World War II and was very much this kind of man, who'd known this kind of, of, of experience said, I'm trying to show you what kind of person you ought not to be. Uh, that's a nice answer, it's a quotable answer. But the great thing about In a Lonely Place is that it understands that there is, there is no simple answer for these people. Of course, they're the kinds of people you don't want to be, but how are they gonna help that? What are they gonna do about that? That's what tragedy is all about. Uh, it is about not having uh, 
the capacity to ward off the inevitable about being too flawed, too damaged, uh, about simply being, you know, like Lear says, uh, as flies to the gods, you know, they, they, boys pick off the wings of flies. These things happen. Maybe that's the great motto of film noir. These things happen. Yeah, there's a part of reality that we do not want to see. And as we said with Bogart and Nicholas Ray personally, with Lee Marvin and with a number of other of these people who excelled in this dark portrayal of doomed manliness, you see both that they personally had experience and that they judged things far more clearly than you would think. The Nicholas Ray and Bogart were never at home in Hollywood, but they could never go away. They succeeded at cer in certain ways and failed in others. And nevertheless, their portrayal of noble losers is not uh, simply a eulogy on an encomium. They tell you, you step beyond respectability, whether by choice or compulsion. What lies beyond is not just a paradise of romance. It's also bestial stuff. It's also the brutality of our nature. And people who stay within the bounds of respectability by, by virtue or by luck, have it better in a certain way. They do not have to experience these things, but are tempted by them. What did you just say? Doomed manliness? There you go. Yes. That's an epitaph uh, for Dixon Steele. And so, of course, we, we admire or even envy these characters, but we're not jealous of them because we don't want to be doomed. Yeah, that's right. A nice note, I think, on which to wrap this one up. Yes. Nice is not the right word for it. <laughs> Terry, thanks again for joining me. It's good to end with a bit of a joke after what has been so serious and in certain ways grim a story. And how about for our next noir we talk double indemnity? I think that would suit me right down to the ground. Let's so, do that. So, gentle audience, we hope you have enjoyed this and we hope you will discover more of Nicholas Ray's own doomed greatness. And we're going to turn next to Billy Wilder, our first, so to speak, emigrant, an observer of America, an American by choice rather than by birth, and one of the great commentators on the good and the ugly in America. You already mentioned Ace in the Hole. Of course, everyone knows Sunset Boulevard. So there's something to work with by way of noir with Billy Wilder, too. I think we'll have some fun with that. All the best. Until next time. To you as well.